everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Zach Mattis. He's a hospitalist with Pacific Medical Centers in Seattle, and today we're answering your questions about sepsis and antibiotic resistance. That's a good topic. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag TalkWithTheDoc, that's hashtag TalkWithTheDoc, for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Before we start, I want to remind everybody that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started today by welcoming Dr. Mattis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Awesome. Well, this is a great topic. Um, we, we asked people, they sent in great questions, but the one we got most was, what is sepsis? I think that's a good place to start. Um, and really what sepsis is, is a, a syndrome that's characterized by a dysregulated inflammatory response to an infection. Um, so the body has a typical local reaction to infection. Um, and that will release you know, certain inflammatory and non-inflammatory mediators, certain infection-fighting cells to that location um, to help fight infection to stop the spread of infection and to repair injured tissue. Um, and when that response becomes generalized and starts to affect uh, the body in general and non-infected tissues, um, that's when sepsis occurs. Okay. Um, and that's usually manifested by uh, fever or hypothermia, fast heart rate, fast respiratory rate. Um, those are the types of things that we're looking for. And the sequelae of that is organ dysfunction. So um, with severe sepsis, you can have kidney failure, liver failure, okay. even death. So um, just given how bad the uh, inflammatory response to that infection is. Um, I think the salient point here uh, is that it's not a primary entity in and of itself. So it's not like pneumonia. It would be sepsis secondary. It's exactly. A, well, it's a disease, but it's, it's a not syndrome, okay. but it's related to an underlying infection. And that's key is that you have an infection and you get sepsis from that infection. So, um, so not a genetic disease. <laughs> no, no. And do you see it? Uh, I assume maybe you see it more commonly than a general practitioner because you're a hospitalist, correct? Correct. And general practitioners will see this from time to time. And that would be a reason to send somebody to the hospital if there are signs of sepsis related to an infection that they've uncovered uh, or are suspicious for. Um, Do you yeah. find it more often for people who are in the hospital to develop it because they're in the hospital for a different situation? Like it's, yeah, that's very common for uh, sepsis to occur in the hospital. Um, you're just exposed to a whole different milieu of organisms and you're obviously ill enough to be in the hospital and that leaves you, you know, susceptible. So, yeah. And what kinds of conditions or infections most likely would lead to sepsis? Um, so that's a great question. Um, are you asking who's at risk for sepsis or what type of well, infections lead both. to sepsis? Okay, so um, the most common infections that lead to sepsis are bacterial infections, but it can, it can become from any infection, so viral, fungal, etc. Um, the most common are gram-positive bacterial infections. So there's two different bacteria um, based on a gram stain, so kind of how we identify them. So there's gram-positive and gram-negative. Gram-positive bacteria are usually the ones that are most often isolated. Gram-negative bacteria are also um, prevalent in large numbers and then followed by viral and fungal infections. Um, the interesting thing here to note is... Uh, in about half of cases, we don't actually identify an organism. So we 
see all the signs and symptoms of an infection and kind of the, the physiology of sepsis, but we may not, for various reasons, identify a particular organism. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that is for various reasons. Sometimes patients have been exposed to antibiotics uh, prior to the initiation of cultures, or sometimes uh, the bacteria that are causing the infection are very difficult to culture, um, et cetera. So there's just, yeah. So how do you treat it if you don't necessarily know what it is? It depends. So if you don't know what it is, you can make some educated guesses. Uh, so if it's pneumonia, we have standard treatments for pneumonia. So if it's an aspiration pneumonia, so you've... Um, Wait, so pneumonia is a sepsis? So pneumonia is not sepsis. Okay. So, But for example, if you have pneumonia uh, as an infection, there are certain bacteria we know are implicated in community-acquired pneumonia. So we would empirically choose antibiotics to cover okay. those type of bacteria. Then we try to isolate and culture, um, maybe from a sputum sample, what so exactly... spit, right? Yeah, exactly. Just spit. <laughs> so if you cough up some nasty stuff, we'll send that to the lab to have that cultured and hopefully identify a prominent strain of bacteria that we would otherwise consider not normal respiratory flora or normal bacteria that we would otherwise expect. And so if we isolate, let's say, strep, a uh, very common type of community-acquired bacterial uh, infection that leads to pneumonia, then we would target uh, our antibiotic choice to that particular bacteria. Yeah. Sometimes we don't have that information and we just go empirically and we follow along and make sure that other markers of the infection are getting better. So um, is there, are there vital signs responding? Are there symptoms improving? Or is their mentation improving if that was affected? Uh, are their labs improving? Um, those are all things that we can help. Um, how do you yeah. choose the antibiotics? I feel like I've had strep a couple of times in my life and I've had a different kind of antibiotic each time. Is it because I had a different form of strep or is it because antibiotics are evolving? It depends on what type of infection that you have. There are certain different subspecies of streptococcus. Mm -hmm. So um, oftentimes those decisions are based on uh, where the site of infection is, what type of uh, strep we expect to be there, um, and local resistance patterns, and um, sometimes uh, microbiologic data that we can get from the lab. Uh, so if they isolate a certain type of strep, they run susceptibilities to various antibiotics, and, um, and we can make decisions on antibiotics that way you're evolving over time man yeah they are is that when we hear like a superbug is that something that is is relevant here yeah so superbug um this is not really an accepted um kind of medical nomenclature <laughs> that we use in the hospital but essentially what that is is um bacteria that have acquired some antibiotic resistance to one or more commonly used antibiotics um, I say one or more. Um, so, for example, MRSA. So that's uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. Oh. Um, so Staph aureus is a very common skin bacteria. Um, we isolated MRSA, I think, back in the 1960s. So this is a bacteria that is now resistant to a very common type of antibiotic to treat that uh, Staph infection. Um, and um, so that would be a type of, I guess, uh, a bacteria that has some antibiotic resistance, I don't necessarily characterize that as a superbug. Okay. Um, I think superbug in kind of popular media would be something that has um, more serious implications for um, uh, limitations in antibiotic use. So, for example, VRE, so vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. Uh, okay. 
um, or carbapenem resistant E. coli. Um, so these are very, very broad spectrum antibiotics. And really what I think the idea of a superbug is that we often don't have a lot of options for antibiotics to treat those infections. And that's a big deal. Um, especially if the rate of resistance to these antibiotics that we have available exceeds the development of new antibiotics that would otherwise be effective. So when you run out of options, uh, you can't treat infections. So that's a, that's a big deal. So a superbug would be something that has resistance to a whole host of commonly used antibiotics and we're running out of options. So that sounds like a great Hollywood movie. (laughs) The superbug. Yeah. Well, one of the questions we got is, is sepsis the same as blood poisoning? No, not necessarily. So um, blood poisoning also is not really an accepted medical uh, terminology. But so I that can not, find not, it not on something WebMD and Google. exactly. So <laughs> not something that we we use as medical professionals. But essentially, what blood poisoning is, it, the issue is that it's poorly defined. So blood poisoning can mean septicemia, which is just sepsis. Mm-hmm. Um, it can mean bacteremia, so bacteria that's isolated in the blood, so a bloodstream infection. Um, so those are two completely different things that can be referred to as blood poisoning. Um, so you may ask somebody and get a different answer. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, what about septic shock? Is that the same as sepsis or is that like the next stage? So septic shock is sepsis that is associated with low blood pressure that for whatever reason hasn't responded to adequate amount of fluid resuscitation. Um, so when patients come in, They can be um, initially given uh, a bolus of IV fluids um, as part of the the treatment for sepsis. If their blood pressure is still low um, and requires the addition of a vasopressor or basically an IV medication to help raise the blood pressure to perfuse or to give blood to vital organs, um, we would call that septic shock. Got it. Okay. I feel like we, you know, I don't think most people even have heard of sepsis a lot, but I feel like we're seeing a lot more lately because you had the Paul Allen and the Hugh Hefner and that was all the media said is sepsis, dies of sepsis, which isn't really what started with them, right? That's just, is that what they typically would die from because you can't treat it? Yeah, you would say sepsis secondary to whatever infection that patient had. Um, So you can die from sequelae of sepsis, um, but the primary infection wouldn't have been sepsis. Okay. If that makes sense. Well, who's typically at the highest risk for developing sepsis? Um, so our elderly population, so anyone over 65, anyone who has some impairment of immunity, so that can be um, any type of immunosuppressive medications, chemotherapy, HIV infection, patients who have prior hospitalization, um, patients who... Um, have multiple comorbidities, for example, diabetes. Um, those are all big risk factors for a development of, of sepsis. What about post-surgical patients? Um, those are always at risk um, for kind of post-surgical complications that can include um, surgical site infections, um, UTIs, pneumonia, et cetera. And those um, can certainly lead to sepsis. Yeah. Is there any prevent? We got a question that said, "Is there a flu shot or something like a flu shot that prevents sepsis?" Is there anything you can do to get ahead of it? Unfortunately, no. Um, it would be primary infection prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, so good hygiene, good hand um, washing practices, um, avoidance of known sick contacts. If you have some 
uh, risk factor like we have already kind of described. So mm-hmm. if you're an older patient who's on some type of immunotherapy and you know that your sister is sick, um, avoiding that would, you know, and then vaccination. Okay. Um, so we know that staying up to date on vaccinations, so your pneumonia vaccinations, your influenza vaccinations every year, we know that that has some. No, so a flu shot doesn't really prevent it, but it keeps you healthier. Um, so there's some interesting t- statistics on, on the flu shot. So, and I think this is something that would be valuable to touch on here. So the flu shot um, prevents millions of influenza infections per year um, and cuts down what is estimated to be maybe 40 to 60% of office visits related to influenza. So you may end up with the flu if you get the flu shot, but you're significantly less likely to develop severe symptoms of influenza. Um, And I think we can extrapolate that into a less risk for development of sepsis secondary to influenza. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, the question came in, is there a cure for sepsis? Uh, No, it would be the just treatment of the underlying infection. We do have ways that we manage sepsis, um, and this is something that is evolving over time. Um, there's uh, different committees that are dedicated to um, sepsis research, so timely administration of fluids, how much fluids, timely administration of antibiotics, what that means, what type of antibiotics, who gets them, how do we identify sepsis, um, that's a great question. Like, so, how do you identify it? And I assume it's how quickly you identify it impacts the quick, the, how long it takes to, I don't know, make you well? We do know that there is a time-dependent mortality relationship. Um, so similar to the way that we prioritize treatment of stroke or heart attacks, mm-hmm. these are time-dependent diagnoses. If you have you know, occlusion of a coronary artery, you need to get to the cath lab very quickly. Right. And we know if we restore blood flow to that, Um, part of the heart, uh, that you're less likely to have kind of permanent damage uh, associated with that. Similarly, uh, with sepsis, we know that if we identify it and we administer antibiotics quicker, patients die less. Um, So that's something that we know. So being uh, good stewards and knowing how to identify is, is really important. The trouble is a lot of the things that present with symptoms of sepsis may not actually be sepsis. And so there's some studies out there that suggest that what we call suspected sepsis, sometimes maybe 40% of the time turns out not really to be sepsis secondary to an infection, but some other type of inflammatory physiology. Like Um, what? Give us an example. So for example, a patient comes in with bad abdominal pain and they have a fever, they have a white blood cell count, which is a marker of infection that we can pick up on uh, blood chemistries. Um, They are very tachycardic, so their heart rate is very fast, they're breathing very quickly, and we may assume that they have some type of intra-abdominal infection per se. Um, We do a whole host of testing and we figure out that maybe that patient just had really bad acute pancreatitis, so an inflammatory uh, condition of the of the pancreas, and that can present just like sepsis. Got it. But there's really no infection there, uh, so really determining who we expose to antibiotics um, and how we identify sepsis um, has some practical um, limitations. Yeah. Well, this is great information. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation of sepsis and the role of antibiotics. Just talk 
Doc. I'm your host, Mary Ernoff, and I'm here with Dr. Mattis, and we're talking about sepsis and antibiotics. Um, so, Doc, tell me, what are the long-term effect or the long-term effects of sepsis uh, in survivors? Uh, that's a great question, and one that wasn't really considered much uh, until more recently. Um, and we're still learning a lot about what we're now calling post-sepsis syndrome. Uh, so, there can be obvious impacts to patients leaving the hospital. Um, from sequelae of sepsis. For example, if your sepsis was very, very severe, you had a prolonged stay in the ICU uh, and you required hemodialysis for renal failure associated with sepsis, you may require dialysis moving forward. Or if you had septic shock and you were on uh, vasopressors or blood pressure medicines to help support your, your blood pressure, what they do is they really constrict or kind of clamp down the arteries which can compromise blood flow to the fingers, and you may require amputation. And so going home, there may be limitations with that. Um, So those are obvious ones that we've we've picked up on and and we know about. But there are a whole host of other things that we're kind of learning more about physical disability. So 
you know, a lot of patients become very, very weak and deconditioned. They need to go to skilled rehab oh, to get stronger. Sometimes they need dedicated therapies with an occupational therapy to be able to dress themselves, bathe themselves. Oh. But there's a whole host of other neurologic and psychological uh, impacts to um, what we call post-sepsis syndrome that can be, you know, anxiety, depression, PTSD, kind of a PTSD, thing, right? yeah. exactly, nightmares, um, hallucinations, confusion. Um, these are all things that have been implicated in in survivors of sepsis. So there's a lot of research now into figuring out what it is and how best we uh, treat those patients and, and how we make resources available for them when they what leave about, the hospital. What about like my long-term immunity? Like if I have sepsis, am I going to be more susceptible to getting other things? Does it impact my body's ability to fight things? So I, the, I guess the long and short of that is, is yes. I would say that patients who have been susceptible to sepsis before are probably on average more likely to get sepsis mm-hmm. again if they have another infection. Uh, I don't have a statistic to tell you what percentage that would be, um, but just from anecdotal and personal experience, there uh, there's probably some relationship there. If you if say you're in the hospital and you have sepsis, are you like then prohibited from having visitors? Like, how do you how do you handle kind of the spread? No, I wouldn't say that you're pro- prohibited from having visitors. Really, the the thing that we're concerned about in, in the hospital is what type of infection it is and what the exposure risk is to somebody else. So you can be admitted for an infectious disease that's not really contagious in that way. And so visitors would be perfectly fine. Um, really what we do is uh, to control infection is proper infection control measures. So if you have some gastrointestinal illness or a diarrheal illness, um, you'll see your provider's gowning up and gloving up and washing their hands with soap and water when they leave. Um, And so doing those types of things is going to help prevent. But um, there are very, very few circumstances where visitors wouldn't be um, prohibited. Well, most sepsis then is treated through antibiotics, correct? Correct. So sepsis would be secondary to an infection. Um, It doesn't always have to be bacterial. So if it's a bacterial infection, we use antibiotics. If it's viral, antibiotics wouldn't be any good. Right. Or if it's fungal, antibiotics wouldn't be any good. We would right. use antiviral medicines if they were relevant um, or supportive measures um, and antifungal medicines if the infection was a fungal infection. Yeah. So we hear some about um, some sepsis experts are worried about antibiotic resistance. Is that something that we as a population should be worried about? I think so. Um, and I hate to think of medicine as a, a consumer um, type business, but patients go to their doctors and they may request things uh, mm-hmm. like antibiotics and, and that may be uh, something that... For a cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So really when we talk about, you know, um, preventing this type of thing, so for example, antibiotic resistance, how do we, how do we address that? One, it's the judicious use of antibiotics by the provider. So knowing when it's appropriate, when you're treating a bacterial infection, selecting something that's appropriately broad or narrow, Mm -hmm. and then tailoring it over time to uh, culture data or susceptibility patterns, knowing, um, you know, what information is available to you. So uh, if you're in the hospital setting, there are... um, basically local or hospital resistance rates for certain bacteria, um, knowing what the community rates are for antibiotic resistance. Um, and then 
um, also, I think this from a patient standpoint, knowing that if you've got a viral infection, um, that antibiotics are not going to be useful. So, um, you know, the more urgent care visits we have for uncomplicated viral upper respiratory tract infections, for example, that, that get antibiotics, the more likely we are to just breed, you know, antibiotic resistance in the community. Are we somewhat though, as patients and consumers responsible for this because we're not taking all of our antibiotics or we're not using the right dosage or we're not finishing the prescription. Cause that's what we read. No, no, I wouldn't say that that has any impact on antibiotic resistance. Um, if it's been prescribed to you, I would recommend that you complete it. Obviously if side effects occur or you're intolerant to the antibiotic, um, when you discontinue it make sure that you've communicated with your provider for an alternative, uh, that would be effective to treat whatever infection that you have. So, um, that would not have any impact on. So, so then what resistance. is really causing the antibiotic resistance? Is it just the mutation of the bug itself or the, whatever it is? Uh, it's a complicated and multi answer question. It's like, uh, you, I need a whole nother hour for this. <laughs> uh, basically. Um, but there are basically pressures on, um, on the bacteria. So for example, in the hospital, we know that there is some direct link between, um, antibiotic resistance and um, hygiene practices of the healthcare providers, just because that's how bacteria are kind of disseminated amongst the hospital. So touching, you know, hospital equipment or patients and then going to another patient and that's, you know, then those patients are exposed to different antibiotics and that's kind of one way that it's, uh, you know, antibiotics are um, becoming less effective. Uh, we also know that there's some selective pressure on, on bacteria for uh, selective mutation. So if we expose the same bacteria to one antibiotic, there may be one of a billion bacteria that develop a point mutation to develop some resistance. So, um, they're, so they're, you could, yeah. in theory, take multiple antibiotics for the same condition, I guess, if one's not working? Correct. It depends on the type of infection. So there are certain infections that many different antibiotic options are available. There are sometimes multiple first lines. Sometimes there are only one first line agent available. Sometimes there's infections, for example, syphilis that only respond or we only treat with penicillin. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have penicillin allergies, some of those patients are going to have to undergo desensitization, uh, like a whole process oh, wow. to be desensitized, then to be exposed and treated uh, oh, wow. with penicillin. So it really depends on the infection, but... Um, I would say if you have questions, just ask your healthcare provider, especially if you know that you're intolerant to a particular medicine or you've been prescribed a medicine that you're not tolerating for whatever reason, um, that there may, see, may be an alternative. Well, one of the questions that came in was, can my body get immune to taking the same antibiotic over and over for the same thing? Also another good question um, that's very broad, um, but I don't think immune uh, is the right terminology. I think the crux of this question is, if I take the same antibiotic over and over and over, can I breed resistant bacteria? The answer in yes and no. So there are certain bacteria that we know are universally sensitive to a particular antibiotic. Um, for example? So the, like for strep throat, penicillin works just fine for that. And it... To our knowledge, most of those isolates are going to be susceptible. Um, 
there are others that you may, let's say you get a urinary tract infection multiple times a year. If we keep giving you the same antibiotic, maybe over time there are a small colony of bacteria that develop some resistance. Um, and so that would not be an effective antibiotic anymore. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, this question says, can my body suddenly reject antibiotics that I've been taking for years? It's possible. Um, and if that does occur, um, I would just, uh, encourage you to reach out to your provider because, um, if you're on antibiotics, obviously that means that we think you have an infection that could also be a sign that maybe your infection isn't being well controlled and maybe it's not a side effect of the medication per se. Um, but it is possible. Um, so, um, I would say yes, but (laughs) consult with your, your doctor about it. Are there new antibiotics coming out or clinical trials or anything? Like what's innovative coming down the road here? I think there's always new antibiotics coming out. Um, So uh, this is something that I think we're going to be reliant on in the future is kind of novel agents. So um, new development of antibiotics that work in a different mechanism um, to to address some of these infections that um, are becoming more and more difficult to treat with um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So um, I... How do we, I guess the thing is, is if we're not necessarily responsible and it's really the mutation of the bug, like how do we get ahead of this? Like, is it, is, is all the research being done in how do we kill the bugs off? Like where's the research being done? So the research is done in, in all of these avenues. So really it comes, as we kind of already touched on antibiotic resistance is, is a multifaceted process. So it comes down to prescriber practices, um, how antibiotics are, are used, um, how bacteria are exposed over time to different agents. Um, so one of the questions we got was, should you take an antibiotic prescription if it was not prescribed for you? And I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that it's, I know I need a prescription. I don't have insurance or I have the same condition that you have. And so I'm just going to take your pills. What, what's the answer you'd give here? Yeah, I would not recommend taking antibiotics not prescribed to you. Um, and obviously, uh, as a physician, that's probably going to be my answer. I but hope so. <laughs> as a friend, I would also say that. And, and, and here's the reason. It's important for a healthcare provider to make that choice um, of antibiotic, what particular type of antibiotic it is, what the particular dose and frequency is. Um, that will not be the same for every patient, right. even if it's the same infection. So if you have chronic kidney disease, um, the dose of your medication and how frequently you take it may be completely different than your neighbor or your brother who had the same infection. And then furthermore, if you do think that you have an infection and you're taking an antibiotic and you're not getting better, it would be important for a healthcare provider who had already been prescribing you that medication to know that you weren't getting better, um, to have that line of communication. And furthermore, if you were to develop a reaction or some side effect, Good point. that would not be uh, that would not be good if if that was um, intended for somebody else and and you ended up with a bad outcome from well, taking Well, I can it. imagine too that if if I were to take a medication somebody was prescribed for someone else and it wasn't actually treating my condition and I came in, it could be impacting the results that you would have as well, it right? It can. It it could potentially. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Well, this was a lot of great information. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, taking all of our crazy questions as well. Um, thank you to Dr. Mattis for joining us. You can follow PacMed's doctors on Twitter at PacMedWA and on Facebook under Pacific Medical Centers. We look forward to future topics with more experts from PacMed in Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.